0: Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russell McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, well, today we're going to talk about this doctor status business a little bit on Peter. So his dissertation is relatively fresh off of his mind since he just successfully defended here recently. And we thought that would be kind of a fun topic to get into on expectations. And we're going to roll some faith components in along with this uh, to try
1: to get a better understanding. So what do you got to say, Peter? Sure. So I defended my dissertation about two weeks ago. It's getting close to that. And it's, it's made up of three papers. I'm really going to talk about one. If we have time, we can get into the others as well. But I think one of them will be sufficient for a, a podcast today. And so I'm going to talk about the the paper is called more than labor. And so what this paper is what, what I try to do with it is. You know, from Thomas Malthus up to even you know January 2020, there were like 11,000 scientists who got together and signed a, a climate change petition. And okay,
0: like time out. Thomas Malthus. We remember our listeners are not. We'll, we'll get. get color, we'll get. We'll get. We'll get so back let's to it. Make sure. Yeah. Time frame roughly 1700s. Yeah, late, 1700s. late 1700s. Yeah. We'll get. Just, we'll get back just, to just Malthus kind of in a second. Make sure you're not throwing up too many econ. You're not talking to your dissertation committee here. You're talking yeah, to my we'll, dad. Who's we'll, on the other we'll, line. We'll,
1: here, so. we'll get back to it in a second. All right. All right. So. so Malthus and then 11,000 scientists, uh, you know, uh, signed this petition and the petition was, it was several components, but one component of the petition was we need to stabilize world population growth. So that way we have a proper response to climate change because the climate can't handle more people is essentially the idea. This relates to Malthus because Malthus's classic work, he's an economist, he did lots of things, but his classic work was an essay on the principle of population which said for different reasons, we should stabilize the population. Malthus's reason is basically, we're going to run out of resources, we're going to run out of food, of course. Which has been
0: the battle cry for other people on environmental issues. And so Malthus is kind of famous that way that he thought population growth was kind of the problem because of a fixed resources, which is sometimes the mentality we give at least our principal students Mm -hmm. in class that we have a fixed amount of resources and we need to figure out the most efficient way to, to allocate these. And if the population's growing by 3% each year and we're not having incomes grow, then population per, or I'm sorry, income per person is going to be pretty dismal. So I think economics got coined the dismal science mm-hmm. uh, from Malthus's work.
1: Yeah, yeah, they know that that's that's a, a good tie-in and a good point that, you know, that's how economics is sort of known as the dismal science. And so what I, what I What I do in this paper is I go back to what is the current economic literature on this and the current economic literature says something very similar to what Malthus was saying or at least a lot of it does essentially what the current literature does is say imagine that people are happy for two reasons because they get to consume things over their lifetime and because their children get to consume things and they they like their children so there's altruism in this economic function and so these are the two reasons people are happy now imagine there's a resource that over time is going to be destroyed so, a common pool resource you can think of this as like the climates this is something that you could consume and take a piece of it away but it's going to destroy it for some future generation down the line and so what happens because of this what this function implies is that there's going to be a common pool resource problem where because your children because you can get utility or happiness by your children being happy if you consume more of that climate today to give to your children, or if you have more children who can consume the climate today before it runs out, you're going to overproduce children. That's basically what comes out of this. And there's mathematical functions where they find this, you know, number of children you'll have compared to the optimum. And look, people are having too many kids. Okay. That's and so that, that
0: is actually where Malthus went to, right? Because yes. he said back in the late 1700s, when people get richer, they make more babies. Yep. Right? And so that was his argument too, that the, the conclusion was, We're going to all be at subsistence level living prior to the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. and the powers of capitalism uh, in the united states that went on to prove that wrong
1: yeah the interestingly it's basically same argument different words so now the common pool resource is the environment as opposed to food yeah and so you have too many kids because they consume the environment and so what, what i try to do in my paper is show that you know the these models are insufficient And the reason they're not sufficient is in the background of these models well you know remember what are the two things that make people happy their consumption and their children's consumption. Well, how do they decide how much you get to consume and the answer is they decide it based on your income. And well, then the question is like where does your income come from and so there's a there's a, a model it's a path dependent model, which means you know that calculus determines where it's at but essentially what it means is that every person is going to have some wage. W star, that's their steady wage that they have over their lifetime. And that W star is gonna control all of the happiness that you get over your life and what your children get and all these things, both your wages and your bequests. Those are the two things that matter. And this is sort of a necessary condition in order to find what an optimal population would be. My paper argues that there's no such thing as an optimal population, that this is a meaningless term. That sounds like you got something. Yeah, that, that when you look at these models, the reason they use wage is because they assume everybody's contribution is their contribution as a laborer. And so every person is a laborer who has some optimal wage. And you again find that with some calculus equation, first order conditions, if you know that. And,
0: and the way economists treat a laborer, the way Peter just said, is we treat it, we treat you like a lump of coal. That's Basically, right. one hour of your time is in a production function that produces 10 pizzas. So one hour equals 10 pizzas, it doesn't matter if I put Peter in the oven making the pizza, or if I put, uh, sorry, in the kitchen, (laughs) in the kitchen, I was envisioning the pizza oven at the time I said that, or whether I put a unit of Justin's hour, or a unit of Nate's hour, right? And so I think that's important for people to know when we use the word labor like that. These are some of the details of economics, where we get these kind of crazy comments is, is ultimately where we're going with this. But some of these nuances, I think are important for our audience to hear that
2: that that's the way labor is treated, and that's exactly what you're challenging, right? That's right. So, can I ask a question just to really simplify your uh, your presentation of the argument that you're criticizing? Yes. Right. So, Malthus's argument was that production increases linearly, but population <laughs> increases geometrically, right? Mm-hmm. And so that geometric expansion will necessarily swamp any increase in production and make it the case that everyone's living at subsistence levels all the time right right? but the argument that you are criticizing is that population increases but it's not even that the resource base increases linearly right it's a fixed resource so it's even more dismal than the Malthusian argument, is that
1: correct? Yeah, I, th- I think that would be a, f- a fair way to, to put it, is that you're right, there's some fixed resource out there and that we slowly eat away at it. That, that's how it's modeled basically. And there's there's various models that try to, what if it's growing, what if it's shrinking and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- yeah, that, that's a good way to think of it. And so you're right, it is more dismal. And so from that, from the dismal side of things, we get our, our labor star, which is the same, you know, that's the amount of people in your labor force, which is the same as the amount of people in your population in these models. And here's my problem with that. And I think the problem with the model, the problem with that is that people actually serve more than one role in an economy, even if we assume that everybody just serves some role in the economy. You can be a laborer, but you can also be an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs contribute to the economy in ways that undermine every sort of model associated with these papers. (laughs) That's why most economists hate entrepreneurship. That's right. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is probably the most ignored factor of production because by its nature, it sort of confounds static models. You know, we usually think of economics as comparative statics, and that's a useful way to think about things. But when you step into policy using those models and you ignore the fact that we live in a dynamic world, you're going to step into the problems caused by that. And so what I point out is, you know, there's several things that entrepreneurs can do to mess this up. First off, if you earn profits, suddenly your wage has changed, you know, your income has changed because you get profit on top of that. And so your utility is higher now. And so, you know, a model which treats everyone as an equal labor is not going to account for the fact that you could forego some entrepreneur who makes a lot of profit for themselves and all the utility they get. Also, as an entrepreneur, and this is what one economist, Israel Kirzner, said, entrepreneurs sometimes change prices. And so, you know, you can imagine if like there's two different prices for a good, there could be someone who engages in arbitrage. They could buy the good where it's cheap and sell it where it's expensive and sort of bring those prices together. Yeah. And so if entrepreneurs can change prices, you know, they can actually change the whole equilibrium in the economy, which all of these models are based on, you know, a stable equilibrium path. There's,
0: there's a piece from Kirzner that has stuck out in my mind. Maybe Nate remembers this from our, our class that we do that the entrepreneur brings to the table almost like magic free money, in a sense that the economist can't have in any model. It's like you just opened your hand and like, voila, there's a $5 bill. It's like finding wealth because nothing that was in your economic model in terms of the number of resources that were available at a given point in time is there. You're just figuring out, you have an aha moment of how you could reorganize the existing resources mm-hmm. in such a way that it frees up other ones. And that's basically as close as we get
1: to free money. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is the one free lunch in economics is what I would say. And actually it relates. And that's why I've got three papers together It relates to another paper I did, which Jim Gortney talked about on this very podcast, actually about Malcolm McLean and his contribution for listeners. If you haven't listened to that podcast, you should, but Malcolm McLean essentially pioneered shipping containers and universal shipping containers. And that was, it, it wasn't new actually. Uh, shipping containers had been used for a really long time before McLean did it. But what McLean realized is, hey, if I can get the standard shipping container, and if I really put all my resources into standardized shipping, I'm not inventing anything new, but I'm gonna reorganize resources in a way that limits, you know, the amount of theft of resources, you know, being shipped or damaged or things like that. And he made a ton of profit because of that. He made a lot of money. And so McLean's a great example of this cursory entrepreneur doesn't invent anything, but he just creates wealth by reorganizing things and taking a risk. And so for, you know, for these reasons, and you know, there's also other types of entrepreneurship, there's a Schumpeterian entrepreneur. And so again, this function in the background that decides the optimal population has technology, which in economics we represent with the variable A. Well, the Schumpeterian entrepreneur invents new technology. So if A changes again, the equilibrium in the model changes. And so there's all sorts of issues and finding some sort of optimal labor stock. If people aren't just labor, they're more than labor, they're actually entrepreneurs as well. And so that's the main idea of the paper. And then I actually highlight that with a case of one entrepreneur, Jack Ma. And so Jack Ma the found, was the founder of Alibaba. And he was- Now the-
0: Alibaba is kind of the Amazon of
1: that's China right. Yeah, that's or? right. It, it's I think it's fair to say it's the biggest company in the world. It depends on how you measure it. But I would say that. Yeah, it's it's China's Amazon, essentially. But they're they, you know, guarantee transactions. They have like banking functions, too. Yeah. They were essentially the first Chinese company to the Internet. And and I, I highlight that Jack Ma though he wasn't born after the one child policy, he was born after in China, he was born after its conception. Mm. So I use him as like a counterfactual, imagine if there was no Jack Ma, that's essentially because I I can't actually figure out who is a foregone entrepreneur, right? That's impossible. By definition, that person doesn't exist. But I can pick out someone who we could imagine the world goes without, because you know, you have some population policy that tries to limit the population. And so Jack Ma is my example. Uh, he was the second child in a poor family related to people that the government didn't like. Hmm. And so had the one child one child policy been, you know, implemented when Mao originally wanted there to be a child policy rather than when it was, this person probably wouldn't have existed. Yeah. The point is these models have no way to capture what Jack modded the Chinese economy. That's right. really the the at the very base of what the paper is. And I always hesitate, you know, that you know, if Thomas Edison
0: didn't exist, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, able to look inside a dark room that it delays it though, right? There would have been another Jack Ma probably down the road. Maybe it wouldn't have looked like exactly the way it does today, but there would have been some sort of evolution, but would it have been 10 years later, 20 years later, you know, who knows, but that's that if you take the exponential growth of the, of the 10 years worth of income that Jack Ma helped create in faster than what it would have otherwise developed, and you put that into a 40-year development—that's a ton of money and wealth, yeah. right? So I, I think I always hesitate when people say, "Well, you know, what if Jack Ma wasn't wasn't born?" But it's still very significant, even
1: if there's a delay in terms of real prosperity. Yeah, and there could there could be like evil Jack Ma, right? There could be like anti-entrepreneur Jack Ma, whose whole business <laughs> is stealing stuff from people. The the biggest point is I use Jack <laughs> Ma as an example for how these these. Policies could be wrong one way. But the biggest point is just that people don't fit into the models that we're trying to use to, to influence policy. And the fact that people don't fit into them should nullify our want to use them for policy. That doesn't mean they're not useful for thinking about things. It doesn't mean we can never use equilibrium models because obviously there's always dynamics going on. Yeah. But to use them for policy is a totally different question.
0: Well, I don't know about you listeners, but I'm dying to hear how Peter's going to weave this into some sort of faith component. And so with that, we will be going into our short break and we'll continue on from there. Catch you in a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at Lord of the Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. We have a new PPE league, which is philosophy, politics, and economics, starting up here next year. Kind of an exciting term where we're going to have schools competing. Philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free and honest discourse. The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government and the promotion of human flourishing, and the economics component will focus in on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. So look forward to that. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like this, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. We're going to have Peter continue on with some stuff, and I'm anxious to hear how he's going to weave this into some sort of biblical narrative, but I, I wanted to throw out a Bible quote. We haven't done that for a while. So Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So I kind of look at that quote, and there's some other ones on there too, about us being uh, unique and having a plan and it certainly doesn't sound like a lump of coal or people as a blob, L, being measured by um, econometric function. So, Peter, I take what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, so, you know, certainly the the analysis doesn't require uh, like appeals to, you know, Scripture or anything like that. But I, it fits in with, with that. And, and I think there's a reason it fits in. It's because I think, you know, Scripture is true and the Bible is true. And, and it's, it's good that it does fit in. And so maybe the, I think Russ's verse there was maybe like a, a perfect segue into how we should view people when we, we look at our, our models, especially implementing our models. And so I, I go to in the paper, and I'm going to talk about here, kind of contrasting ideas by James Buchanan. And for those of you who don't know, James Buchanan was an economist. He created what's now known as public choice economics, which was sort of a response to sort of like, Current theories of fiscal policy of the day and how government worked.
0: And And, and I'll just add, it was the one where people actually run the government and we can't forget that they're self-interested and why would we expect the government to behave in some sort of perfect way that's going to solve our problems?
1: Yeah, so the way that Buchanan delineates these two ideas are the organismic view of government, excuse me, that's always a hard one for me to say, organismic and the individualistic view of government organismic sort of use governments and policymakers therefore as like this brain. It has access to all the knowledge in the world. It has a singular goal of improving social welfare, whatever that means. And, you know, it has access to all the means It knows its ends and it just arranges them perfectly. Kind of like Klaus in our last podcast. Yeah. Kind of like Klaus in our last podcast. Yeah, okay. the, the idea that there's just some goal that, you know, the government or the fiscal policy creators have and they can perfectly, they know that goal, and there's no incentive problems, they're just going to do it. And that's how public finance economics used to be done. It assumed that basically in the background. Well, James Buchanan comes along and says, wait, isn't it individuals who run the government? And don't individuals have, you know, constraints and incentives and knowledge problems just like everybody else, whether they're in the government or not? And I think this application in In terms of my paper, is that really policy should come from an an individualistic view? And you know, Buchanan called the organismic view the fiscal brain. So in my policy, I say that this is the idea of the population brain versus the population's brains. And so you you could either look at the world as something that you can model perfectly, and we have some optimal population L star, we just get there, or you could view individuals as unique, and you could view policymakers as limited in their ability to capture the uniqueness. And actually really, as you know, the Bible verse implies, we only God knows the plans that he has for us. It's not like there's a population brain out there in government that knows the plans that they have and can, you know, perfectly capture that. Whereas, you know, the, that's sort of what a policy based on this thinking would imply is that we can do that. And so I I think uh, looking at both a state and people from an individualistic perspective, rather than, you know, this, this Organismic perspective is maybe the superior way to to look at people and certainly conforms more with what scripture says. Mm-hmm.
0: Good. And what was your uh, thoughts, Justin, on criticism mm-hmm. of the, the criticism of the criticism, maybe with the map and territory?
2: Oh yeah. So let me first just agree with both of you that economists are the worst. And, uh, <laughs> I think that the criticism, you know, what I was thinking when I was listening to Peter is that this reminds me, I think a lot of people make map versus territory mistakes, where the reason you have a map is to navigate the territory, right? The map is supposed to tell you about the territory. A map is never going to be as finely grained as the territory. Mm. The territory is the territory. But if you mistake the map for for the territory, and you think that, oh, well, Look, the map says this is the case, therefore it must be the case. If there's any divergence between map and territory, you have to change the map, right? And your map is never going to tell the absolute truth about the territory. If it did, it would just be as finely grained as the territory, and that would be the territory itself. Hmm. And so, you know, there's a quote about models, which is, you know, a model is a lie that tells the truth. (laughs) And that's what you want out of a model. You want it to tell you the truth, but uh, you should never mistake the model for the actual thing that's being modeled. Yeah. And I think you know, to tie this into contemporary debate, I mean, we see this in the coronavirus policy where people uh, use models and then the model fails and then they still stick with the model instead of <laughs> saying, well, look, if the model fails, we need to update our models, right? Right. One of the things that I take Buchanan as doing is providing a better model for the way the the government works, right? Is it the absolutely correct model? Well, I think models are better or worse, but they're never going to be as finely grained or perfectly reflective of the things
1: which they are meant to model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe Justin will hate me for bringing him back in from the first podcast But I I take, I think William James has has something to say here that is valuable. And I don't think this is unique to him or anything, but there's, there's a certain extent to which like what you're using the model for should actually guide you on whether or not it's a good idea to use the model that is like For example, this, you know, it's called an intergenerational utility function or a dynastic utility function like a dynasty. This is the model that this is built off. It's by economists Gary Becker and Robert Barrow, two good economists who I have a lot of respect for. They didn't do these optimal population policy papers. They just said, what if people only care about their consumption and their children's consumption? What if those are the two things that people care about? And then they do things like, well, what happens if the interest rate goes up? Are people going to have more children or less children? And they make predictions. I think that's fine. And I think there's a really valuable use for that. You know, uh, th- It's the same as supply and demands. When demand goes up, you know, other things equal. That's our clause there is other things equal. Then the price is going to go up. Now, of course, other things aren't actually equal, but that's a useful tool to think about reality. Now, the problem is when you use your model for something that's very consequential. Yeah, uh, on a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like trying to implement some sort of policy on like, you know, should we have tradable procreation grants? That's one of the proposals made by these papers is that like people should be able to buy or sell the, the right to have kids. And, and to me, this is just insane. You you lose so much potential, so many potential Jack maws that way. And you're really doing it off of the basis of a model, which doesn't describe the reality in the way that you want it to. And so I, I, I agree with Justin, certainly that, you know, all models are flawed, you know, and models are, are better or worse. And to add in the James is like, there there's some models for which we're, we, we could be willing to accept the wrongness well, in some models where the, it's it's not pragmatic for us to accept the wrongness yeah, because I, the consequences we, we are better.
0: We kind of hit this before because I, I want to add on to Justin's comments, which I thought were great thinking about the map versus territory, even though I didn't know where the heck he was going with that at first. But the uncertainty of the model is part of knowing that it's the map, not the territory, mm-hmm. right? And so we have these predictions that come out from the experts and whatever, but the uncertainty of it never gets really brought up. And so in a sense, the model might not be flawed if we knew how much uncertainty we were actually facing. So the model, we, we would look kind of after the fact that the model's flawed because it made a bad prediction, right? And we, we could call that a, a flawed model. But in reality, it might just be that under those circumstances, there was so much uncertainty that the model was what it was. It just wasn't a very good map, right? It, had, it was really loose with the detail. And there was so much more to know that it, it gave us a little bit, a little glimpse of, of the real thing, but really not even close to enough. And so I think this idea of uncertainty as it relates to COVID, as it relates to how about election results, the models that predicted how many people were going to vote for Trump or vote for you know various candidates in, in different Senate races. And, and so
1: it's kind of very similar, I think. Tacking on to the end there, economists may be the worst, but we're much less worse than every other type of social scientist in their models. (laughs) So supply and demand beats whole projections any day. Uh, I'll take supply and demand every day of the week. But yeah, and, and to me, the important part is, first off, you know, some models are just too far from reality to even like, you know, be useful in any way. And so like any model that assumes that yeah. government is like this homogenous entity that like, exactly. just allocates things perfectly garbage model, James Buchanan's models are all better in every circumstance. I think I, I don't, can't imagine one where the public finance uh, view of the state, the organismic view of the state is superior, but even, you know, when you have a model that can sometimes be applicable, the stakes are really important when it talks about using that model. What do you lose if you're wrong? Yeah. And, and I think, uh, especially when we're talking about people's lives or people's existences, Um, you know, that's really high stakes. And that's where these shutdown stuff with COVID
0: is so important because we've got real people with real hunger issues or issues that they're going to face that's going to be harmful, delayed treatments of diseases uh, that all of that might come to roost when we did our declaration podcast. Some of the predictions that some of those doctors were saying are outside of this immediate covid concern about what's going to happen to the people that didn't go in for treatment because they couldn't get an appointment or it was shut down or whatever so a lot lots of different issues that are widespread so i think you're absolutely right in terms of i think that's a little bit of type one type two error like what's it going to be if we're wrong yeah so All right, so what else you got on this dissertation? Are we getting close to a wrap here? Yeah, I think I- What's your conclusion?
1: So so (laughs) my conclusion for this individual paper is just that we need to be more considerate of people's ability to be entrepreneurs when we make policies and be more skeptical of these models, which maybe as intellectual exercises can tell us some interesting things, but in practice, probably lead to a a little bit more harm than good. So that's my general take on it. I I should also, I guess I'll mention the other two. And so I've gotten into one already, which was the Malcolm McLean. And the the point of that one was to focus on a lot of times people think that the two types of entrepreneurship that I've mentioned, Schumpeterian and Kersnerian entrepreneurship are in conflicts with each other. The whole point of the Malcolm McLean piece is to illustrate how they're actually two sides of the same coin. That is when McLean entered the industry, he did what a Schumpeterian entrepreneur does, which is he disrupted a lot of things. And so break bulk shipping was how things were done before. There was a whole labor market, hundreds of people would get up early in the morning, go to the dock, and they would literally lift all of the cargo onto the dock one at a time. That's how shipping was done, sometimes bundled together. But, you know, heterogeneous bundles of things, not like boxes, not containers. And that was probably back-breaking work. Backbreaking work, hundreds of hours, lots of theft, lots of union issues. I mean, there was all sorts of problems with this. Injuries, you
0: know? probably like long-term disability type yep. injuries went on, I bet, with that
1: stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And so the Schumpeterian entrepreneur, like McLean, tends to what's called dise- disequilibrate markets or disrupt markets. And one way that McLean disrupts markets is he destroyed basically the market for break bulk shipping. He got rid of those labor markets. So those people lost their jobs and had to do other things. But in doing that, what McLean was actually doing was being a Kersnerian entrepreneur, which is he was rearranging you know, resources, in this case, steel and containers that already existed, rearranging them in a way uh, that he could ship uh, things at a lower cost and ended up, you know bringing about these amazing things like a Barbie doll that's made in like five different countries that wasn't possible before containerized shipping. And so that was the point of the other. The last one, the last paper in this series, so the economics dissertations are often a collection of essays nowadays. And the last one was on political calculation, specifically having to deal with Amazon's HQ2 deal. And so this was back, I, I think 2019, 2018. Yeah, at Atlanta, Kansas City was in the running. For yeah, us. yeah. Uh, Carolina was in the running as well. That's one of the states that uh, we specifically were looking at. But the idea was Amazon wanted to go to different states and different states were kind of pitching you know, offers. You don't have to pay taxes for this long. You don't have to pay taxes for this long. And the classic idea is like, oh, you're going to create jobs. And so the whole point of this paper is to talk about, well, Economic growth doesn't come from jobs as we economists know it comes from sending resources to their highest valued use. Creating jobs is a technical outcome. It's something that you can do as a politician, but it won't lead to economic growth. So we sort of point out how there's a knowledge problem associated with allocating like tax subsidies and things like that. Politicians don't know who should, you know, get tax subsidies and that leads to an incentive problem that is it's going to lead to politicians sort of going in the back doors with like amazon and you know big corporations uh, to try to cut them really nice deals basically at the taxpayers expense and so it's interesting you get you know criticism from Alexandria ocasio-cortez who generally i disagree with but on this particular thing i thought she she had a lot of good things to say because she was pointing out the incentive problems though uh, you know it'd be nice if she understood the reason for the incentive problems which is the knowledge problems And so a little bit about political entrepreneurship in this paper, basically. Yeah.
2: These deals with, you know, attracting big corporations with tax breaks always ire me a little bit because I think, well, if they say it's good for the economy to give Amazon a tax break, wouldn't it also be good for the economy to give the rest of the businesses a tax break too? Yeah. Uh, You know, if it's good for the goose, I kind of think this is uh, worthy
0: of another podcast because I I think there's a lot of examples and little issues that that could be brought up with that so um, I think we'll we'll put that on the agenda uh, for uh, another podcast so
1: yeah so those were the three chapters and thanks everyone for listening to them yeah good
0: work glad you got got it under your belt and now the real work begins here at the Court Institute for okay. so Dr. Peter Jacobson so all right well we'd like to thank you all for listening today to our podcast and please forward it along to your friends if you think it's something they might be interested in or give us a five star to get people you don't know uh, potentially interested in our podcast but they might be of the line of thinking that you are so other than that be fruitful and multiply thanks <music>